Happy New Year. Uh, we're continuing on with our series in the book of Mark. Uh, we're in the season of the Gospels, and I, I've called this the misunderstood Messiah. As we go through the book of Mark, Mark is making the point that Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah. He's God come in human flesh to Israel. And he stated the case last week. And last week, I, I kind of pushed us to think about the fact that, that when the Messiah comes to us, very often it's in surprising ways, in ways that we don't expect. Um, this week, we move on to another series of stories, starting in uh, chapter 1, verse 21. Um, Mark tells these rapid fire stories and, you know, if, if, if I mean, I, I know we've got action movies and we're used to all these, you know, so we don't get so moved by this rapid fire story that we just read. But Mark, Mark's original readers, it's just like story after story, like this barrage of information, challenging them with who Jesus is and what he's done and asking them to draw a conclusion. Well, this week there's five different stories. Almost all of them deal with the power of Jesus as a way to affirm that he is truly the Messiah. There's lots of ground to cover. There's five stories, but it's only 36 verses. But I'm going to read from 1, Mark 1, to 2, verse 12. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. And the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. And the evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. And the people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. And news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. And as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. And Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. And that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove, drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. And very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. And Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. And Jesus replied, Let's go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That's why I've come. And so he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you're willing, you can make me clean. And filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See to it that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. And as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in the lonely places. And yet people still came to him from everywhere. A few days later... When Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. And so many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. 
And some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. And since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. And after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And he got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Now, all these stories are linked by one theme, and that is the power that comes from authority. Jesus seemed to make an impact everywhere he went. He taught like no other teacher. His words carried authority. It helps when you heal people right in front of your audience. It helps when demons cry out from inside of people, you're the Holy One of God. But there's no getting away from it. Jesus had power. It says in verse 22 of chapter 1, He taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. And as you look at these stories, like the, the first two stories or the groups of stories, really emphasize His power over the spiritual realm. In verse 23, there's a man in their synagogue possessed by an evil spirit, and he cries out while Jesus is teaching, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And when, when you start talking about demon possession, this is the place where North American minds can go one of two ways. Um, a theologian that I like to read, Alan Cole, says, It's been said that there are two equally great dangers when we think about the enemy. The first is to ignore him or to, try exp to explain him away scientifically. And the second is to concentrate on him in an unhealthy way instead of concentrating on Christ to concentrate on the evil spirits rather than the Holy Spirit. You know, in our modern world, very often when, when modern minds read these passages about demon possession, they think, well, this is just language that was used to deal with severe mental illness in the past. And there really is no such thing as demon possession. Now, some of you that have traveled in other areas and have seen things like this may want to dispute that, and I would want to dispute that. But, but, but what happens is it launches this disagreement between people who think there's no such thing as this spiritual realm and people who think that's really the only thing that every single sin we ever commit is because a demon is attacking us. We can overemphasize or underemphasize that and miss the point of the story. And that is that when the evil spirit manifests, Jesus says, be quiet, shut up, come out of him, and the spirit does. Now Mark's making very clear that Jesus has power and authority over this spiritual realm, even if we don't understand it. Happens again in verse 34. He drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Jesus had authority and power over the spiritual realm. Also, in, when he goes to Peter's house, just after this, he has power over physical sickness. First, he heals Peter's mother-in-law. It's an immediate healing, fully restored her to the point of being able to get up and to serve them. And the word spread around and it says, literally, the whole town gathered at the door with their sick and demon possessed. The whole, everybody in, in all this town of Capernaum came to Peter's door. It was an amazing evening where Jesus healed the sick and cast out the demons. And you think about this, it's a small town. You know how, how 
in a small town, it just feels different. You have stories, you have relationships, you know people. Uh, my wife still describes places in town by the name of the person who owned that house three owners ago because there's a history there. And can you imagine now in Capernaum, for the years following this, there were these people who had been healed at Peter's house that night telling their story. Remember when that happened? Oh, you remember when that happened? It's an event where Jesus heals. Now, in the next one, there's all these stories that come out of this thing that happens at Peter's house, but Mark doesn't dwell on any of those. He doesn't give us any detail. He moves on, and if you look in verse 40 to 45, there's another healing, but this one's about power to restore those excluded. A man with leprosy came to him. The Greek word there can mean any kind of infectious skin disease. It could have been what we commonly know as leprosy, but it could have also been another infectious kind of skin disease. And he says, Jesus, if you're willing you can make me clean. And clean is a very, very important word there. Because because of his condition, he had to separate himself from everyone else. We get that feeling a little bit. I I, I love going to, well, I don't love going to the grocery store now during the pandemic, but you kind of feel like you're in a a haunted house because you come around the the aisle corner and there's somebody right in your face and you both kind of jump back because we've got to keep some distance, right? Well, imagine that everywhere this guy walked in Capernaum, everywhere he went in his hometown, where there were people, he had to call out, unclean, so that people could stay away from him and not touch him. I think we understand that, that isolation a bit more in this pandemic, but he has it times a thousand. He can't hang out with anyone. He, he can have no part in the religious rituals of Judaism because he's unclean. And he says to Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And what does Jesus do? He says, I am willing. And he reaches out and touches him and says, be clean. Now, did he touch the people? Is that that the way Jesus healed? Did he touch the people at Peter's house? We don't know. Mark doesn't say that. Mark's not a big detail guy. He moves from story to story. But he purposely here says he touched him. I think that's because Mark wanted us to realize he's, he's doing more than just healing the man. He's restoring him. He's been excluded from the community. And Jesus is welcoming him back in. Jesus says, be clean and says, go to the priests, be, be examined and offer the sacrifices so you can be, you've been excluded, but now you're accepted back into our community. Jesus also tells him to be quiet, which he doesn't, which I, I kind of laugh at that. You know, he goes back to his home with his family where he hasn't been because he's been unclean. And he says, look, I'm better. And then Jesus wants him to keep quiet about what happened. I, I think that's a pretty unreasonable expectation. Anyway, Then the last story that we looked at in chapter 2, it's a very familiar story of the paralytic, and it's one event that combines it all, right? You've heard the story over and over. Jesus comes back into Capernaum. He's probably at Peter's house again, and it's so full, nobody can get in. But these four friends, I always like to imagine, my imagination goes, well, I think one of those four friends might have been healed by Jesus the first time, and he goes to his paralytic, but he says, we got to get him there. They take him, they can't get him into the door, so they go up on the roof, they dig a hole in the roof, they let him down in front, and Jesus, the first thing he says is, son, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders get a little upset about that. Who can forgive sins but God? And Jesus knows what they're thinking, so he says, hey guys, why are you thinking that? But just so you know that I have authority, again, that word, power authority, to forgive sins on earth, get up, take your bed, go home. And the guy does it. And what do you see in this story? You see power over the spiritual realm. Your sins are forgiven. He can do things that have spiritual consequences. You see the power of physical healing. Get up, take your bed, 
go home, you also see this reconnecting of, of the outcast because this is a man who's a sinner and now he has an opportunity to be reconnected with God. His sins are forgiven. He has an opportunity to walk back to his home healed. Now, the religious leaders were not impressed with it. They had some theological issues. That's what we all do when we're religious leaders. We have theological issues with this. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But the ordinary people were amazed. How does he have this power? It, we, we, we hear it in his words. We see it in his actions. And, and what Mark is doing is telling these stories so that you begin to say, what is the source of Jesus' authority? Where does it come from? And tucked away quietly among these stories is one of, of without any overt exercise of power. Just five verses. The only story in this section that doesn't contain some miraculous action. Jesus wakes up after the night of healing at Peter's house. He goes out to pray. After all that success, after all that time dealing with people and healing, he must be tired, but he gets up early because he wants a connection to the Father. See, Jesus was, was united to His Father. They were Father, Son, together with the Spirit, sharing their divine power with the world. This was God, three in one. It's the key to what Jesus was to do. It's the source of His authority. If you remember back when we were in 1 John, lots of times I put up that picture of the icon of, of the Trinity, these three Father, Son, Holy Spirit sitting around a table and that we're invited into this and this idea that they're actually sharing the divine life between them. The, the three persons in one God sharing divine life. And what Jesus does that morning is says, I've got to reconnect to that. He goes to pray to be Father, Son, Spirit living in union, being one, sharing the divine life. And I, I don't know, we, we don't know what he prayed, but I'm, I'm betting it wasn't a prayer list like, God, you know, bless Peter. He has to live with his mother-in-law. Just teasing. <laughs> uh, I've got to live with my mother-in-law, but it's a good situation in my... Or, or he doesn't say, you know, James and John, you know, these sons of thunder, they're, they're very dynamic, God, but they're such a, a pain sometimes because they're so radical. He's not got a prayer list. He works his way down. I feel like he goes and he's with Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He, he, he actually recharges there. He reconnects to the wholeness of the Trinity. And, and this Trinitarian communion does a couple things in our text. One, it gives Jesus freedom from people's expectations. You know, often so much of our lives become about what other people want from us, what, they, what their expectations are. We try to maintain a good image, a good reputation. We try to keep people happy. Or some of you, and I know you, some of you try not to keep people happy. You're the contrarians out there. And you may say, that's not me. I don't worry about people's expectations. But, but the funny thing is, you have an expectation that enslaves you just like the other people have an expectation that enslaves them. You have to be a certain way because that's who you think you want, how you want to be perceived. And when Peter and his companions show up, they say, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. We want more of what you offered. And throughout his ministry, there are people with expectations for Jesus. They want food. They want healing. They want to sit on his right and his left when he comes into his kingdom. They want what they want. And yet this time spent in communion with the Trinity, this time in prayer, frees Jesus from the expectations of Peter, the expectations of the rest of the disciples, the expectations of the whole town of Capernaum. And it gives him clear direction and purpose. Jesus replies in verse 38, let's go somewhere else. 
to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That's why I have come. That's why I have come. He, he knows as he recommunes with the Father, Spirit, Son in prayer, he's reminded again of his purpose. He's not just come for Capernaum. Mark once again is pointing to this bigger picture. This is the Messiah, God in flesh, come to restore everything. He's not to be the resident holy man for this little town where his ministry is based out of. He's got a bigger ministry. And these are are great snippets. They're short, fun Sunday school stories. They're very visual. They're very impactful. Mark writes, and after this, and quickly, he he keeps things moving. But what I want to do today is I want to look at one aspect of all these stories. I want us to see the differing responses to the Messiah from each story. Because in the text, there's a variety of responses to Jesus. That was always the case. People had to wrestle from his actions. They had to think, who is this guy? And it builds to the central question of the whole book of Mark in Mark 8, 27, when Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, who do people say that I am? And that question leads to, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? See, in this in this Time Magazine image that's up on the screen. That, that's a common thing today. Who is this Jesus? Every year there's two, three, four, five major magazines that'll have his picture on the front and people are exploring and investigating. And when we encounter Jesus, there are many different ways to respond. And seeing that this is the first Sunday of a new year, maybe we want to think about how are we responding to the Messiah right now? I want to look at four different responses, and this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the response. I'm also going to give you a visual image. Glenn's going to put it up on the screen for us. It just kind of, it's, it's, it's not, well, it just links the idea of the response to a visual image because we think in images. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about how that was, that was a response we even saw in the early church in the book of Acts. And then ultimately in each one of those, I'm going to say, is that how you're choosing to respond to Jesus? The first one I see throughout all these stories is that when people encountered Jesus, they were often amazed and intrigued. It's a common reaction to Jesus. And and I call it the concert fan reaction. There's an image there of fans at the concert, right? And and there's this great event that they're loving. They're so excited. It's it's flash and it's loud and it's multi-sensory. And they're amazed. This is so cool. Can you believe it? You see that all through the text. 122, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority. In verse 27 and 28, they're amazed again and the news spreads all over Galilee. Even at the end of today's text in 2 verse 12, this amazed everyone and they, and they praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. It's what I call the Jesus fan reaction. He's unique. He's fascinating. He's something to see. And, and you know, this is a great response Unless this is, is where you stop. Unless you, you become a fan, but you don't go anywhere else. There's a story in the early church in Acts, about 25, Paul's in, in prison in Caesarea. He's appealing to go to trial before Caesar in Rome. And there's this local uh, municipal authority guy named Festus, and Festus is going to hear his case. And it just so happens that King Agrippa, who's the guy who took over from Herod the Great, is, is in the same area, and, and King Agrippa has heard about Paul, and he's, he's a bit of a fan, and he says in, in Acts 20, at the end of Acts 25, I'd like to hear this man myself, and so Paul tells his story, and at the end of the story, he kind of pushes Agrippa to respond, and Agrippa in Acts 26 says, 
do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? You see, Agrippa was amazed. He was intrigued by Jesus and this guy Paul, but he wasn't willing to make a commitment. And we often fall into the same spot. We like Jesus. Some of you, we're, we're all drawn to him for different reasons. Some of you are drawn by his revolutionary side. He turned over the tables. He's upsetting things, right? Kind of shaking things up. Some of you are drawn by his compassion. What a, what a compassionate and sacrificial man. Some of you by his teaching, right? It's, it's brilliant, some of the things that he teaches. But often we keep him there and we're his fan. We're amazed and intrigued, but we don't go any further. It's like our favorite football or basketball team that we can watch and cheer for, but it doesn't really have any impact on our day-to-day life. Not long after I came here and started to pastor, a good friend of mine shared a prayer with me from a Danish philosopher, theologian. You've heard of him, I'm sure, Soren Kierkegaard. And this was his prayer. O Lord Jesus Christ, thou didst not come to the world to be served, but also surely not to be admired or in that sense to be worshipped. Thou wast the way and the truth, and it was followers only thou didst demand. Arouse us if we have dozed away into this delusion. Save us from the error of wishing to admire thee instead of being willing to follow thee and to resemble thee. This prayer had a huge impact on me because I realized very often I'm a fan of Jesus. I'm, and as a pastor, I'm a cheerleader for Jesus, right? I'm, I'm saying, look at this cool guy. But it's a dangerous response because it only looks like you're following. As we enter the new year, we have to ask ourselves if our relationship to Jesus is more like that of a fan than a follower. Now, a very different response is found in the religious leaders and the demons. Lump those two together there. And they are afraid and or challenging. If you look at the text in 124, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth, say the demons? Have you come to destroy us? We know who you are. And in in the house when the paralytic comes down and Jesus says, You're forgiven. In chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. They're frustrated. They're mad. They're angry. And both of these images happen. Both of these responses happen when people feel like they're losing Control And I have an image for you. It might be a little controversial, but it's a couple named the McCloskeys. You may remember the McCloskeys from last summer. They had, there was a, a racial equality march going through their neighborhood in St. Louis, and they came out into the yard with their guns to protect their property. Now, I'm not going to delve into the political aspect of whether they should or whether they shouldn't or what. But I, 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 that image is important because at that moment they were afraid of losing what was theirs and they were taking action to protect it. And this may seem a little extreme as an image. But when you come face to face with Jesus, there's this resistance sometimes. Even from his fans, we can find resistance. This Jesus who says, love your enemies. Yes, those ones who hurt you. Do good to those who hate you. Really, Jesus? Turn the other cheek. Forgive as I've forgiven you. You know, that unsettles the status quo. And we feel like that's a bit risky. If we do that, we might lose something. And there's some some fear there. There's some attempt to control, to push back, to, to redefine those statements of Jesus in more palatable ways that we can handle. It's continued in the early church. There was this unsettling impact of the growing church In Acts 4, 1 and 2, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly 
disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They were greatly disturbed. Let's not forget the people in power killed Jesus. They felt there was something so threatening about him that the, the, the country was better off without him. And we can resist the call of Jesus to love our enemies and to forgive and to do good to those who hurt us out of fear of losing control or out of the risk as we follow. As we enter a new year, we have to be honest about our fears of full surrender to Jesus. And as he comes by protesting, as he walks by in his new way of living by our property, we can say, I don't want to lose this. And we maintain a stance of control and fear. Because we're afraid of what actually following him will cost us. A third reaction, one very common within the church, is that we come to Jesus, but we're coming with an agenda. The image here is, is our list of what we think God needs to do for us. We have our agenda, okay, this, this, this. And we see this thing with Jesus as more of a partnership than a surrender. I mean, we have needs, real needs. And if we're going to make a commitment to Jesus, there should be some things that we can expect in return, right? Some peace, some joy, some love, some hope. We talked about things, those, all those things through Advent. You see, Peter and the others are pretty amazed at Jesus' healing extravaganza that night at Peter's house. And early the next morning, more fans are knocking at the door. Once again, my imagination goes wild, and I see knocking at the door, and they say, where's Jesus? And Peter says, I'll go get him. And he goes, and there's a blanket lying on the floor and no Jesus. And he's like, oh, no. And so they go looking for him and they find him. And when they find him, they finally say, Jesus, everybody's looking for you. And yet Jesus has different plans. He's not coming back to Peter's house with his healing extravaganza, at least not yet. He doesn't fulfill our agenda. We, we come to God expecting certain things from him, but that's not the way it works. We come to surrender. Again, in the early church in Acts chapter 8, Peter and John have gone to Samaria the Spirit is coming on believers there. And there's this new convert there, a guy named Simon. Simon was a sorcerer, it says. He, he had some kind of power over the dark realm, it appeared. And, and it says in Acts 8, 18 and 19, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of hand, the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. See, Simon came to Jesus, but he thought, wow, this could be good for if I could do that. If I could add that to my repertoire, imagine what I could do. And you may think, oh, I would never do anything like that. But we do all the time. We do because we expect God to work in certain ways. And when he doesn't, we get frustrated. Why wouldn't you do that, God? We come to him with all our plans and all our agenda. And it's important as we enter a new year to realize that, to lay down our agenda. Because followers follow. That's what we do. We don't lead. And our response in this year, 2021, needs to be the fourth one in our text, that of being receptive and missional. I had to put two pictures together to, to, to contain that, this idea of being receptive, receiving from God, and missional, reaching out to others as a part of the mission of God. It's, it's all through our text. Like, it's not overt because when you receive, it's just something that happens to you, right? Right? 126, the evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. That man received a gift from God. 131, so he went to Peter's mother-in-law and he took her hand and he helped her up and the fever left her. And she began to wait on him. That receiving 
and that missional reaching out. 134, Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons. Once again, receiving from God. It's not like they earned it. It's not like they, they just received what God gave. The leper in 41, 42, filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand, touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. And even he went out and told everybody, even though he wasn't supposed to. And the, the order almost gets reversed. And that's why I think these four friends in, in the, the story in chapter two, I think one of them had been at, or seen the impact that first night in Peter's house because they carry this guy there and they cut a hole in the roof to let him down. They're being missional already. They're joining in the mission of God to bring their paralytic friend to Jesus. And in verse 5, Jesus forgives him. In verse 12, Jesus heals him. He receives. See, these, these ideas of receiving from God and sharing with others are all over the early church. And the most famous passage is Acts 2, 42 to 47. Listen to what the receiving and the missional aspect comes out of this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship the breaking of bread into prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Each day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They received from God and they joined God in his mission. Here's where we need to be as we enter this new year. People who receive what God offers and reach out our hand missionally to the world around us. It's a challenging world. There's political upheaval. There's pandemic. There's fear globally. <laughs> What's going to happen? There's also fear locally. And the text asks us, are you going to be a fan? Or are you going to be a follower? It asks us, will you give in to fear and seek to protect what you have and control Jesus as he seeks to lead your life? Or maybe you'll come to him, but you have your agenda. You'll follow him as long as these criteria get met. Or will you open your heart to receive what he gives and then pour out your life inviting others to do the same? Let's pray. Now there's all these encounters. It would have been amazing I think, to see these happen, to be a part of this, to live in Capernaum and to watch you at work, to have questions when you left abruptly to go to the other towns, to be excited when you came back. And we live 2,000 years away from those moments. And yet we still struggle with our response. And as we're entering a new year and reflecting on last year and Wondering if this is going to be different and what can, what can be different and how can we act this year, God. Help us to, to evaluate our ways of responding to you. Give us open hearts to receive what you give and to share that with others around us. Make us missional in this community. Help us to reach out that, with the good news that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, as we saw last week. Help us to receive the coming of your kingdom by surrendering, by following, and to invite others into that. And God, we, we pray that, that this year, 2021, and hope, that the, the Christians and hope, the believers who follow you, who love you, who want to surrender to you would be a, a point of impact, God, that you would come to our town in new and powerful ways, that people would see that you really are the one who's come to make all things new. Make that evident in our lives as we receive 
and reach out in this coming year. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love what uh, <clears throat> Paul wrote in that passage that Jake just read from 2 Corinthians. He starts saying, For what I received from the Lord, and I also passed on to you. That whole idea of receiving, Paul's received this from Jesus, this, this, these images of body being broken and blood being poured out, and it, what it gives to us is forgiveness and restoration and reconnection, a place at the table with the Trinity where we can draw on that divine life. And then we go out into the world to say, what we have received from God, this we also want to share with you. That's, that's the goal. That's the mission for 2021 for every single day of our lives is to receive what God gives and to share that with the world around us. And that's our prayer for you this week. Amen.